Hello, my name is Janie Humphreys Blome, and I am the Director of Field Services at the American Printing House for the Blind, and I'm here tonight to welcome all of you to the ninth biennial Getting in Touch with Literacy Conference, and we are excited to have you here. I think it's going to be a great few days for everyone, and I hope that you get the chance to learn a lot as you're in sessions and also get the chance to learn a lot as you talk to the people who are here with you. I'd like to take the opportunity right now to thank our sponsors. Did it get too loud now? <laughs> to thank our sponsors for this event. The Braille Challenge is our big kahuna sponsor celebrating their 10th year this year. Yay, Braille Challenge. Our wipeout sponsors, California State University, Los Angeles, and the Charter College of Education. Humanware. and the American Printing House for the Blind. Yay, APH. Um, our Rip Curl sponsor, Playworks, Toys for Serious Play. And we want to say thanks to all of those sponsors and also to the folks who gave us um, in-kind sponsorship for printing and other things like that. We appreciate their work as well. Nancy asked me if I'd take a few minutes to say a little bit about the beginning of the Literacy Conference. And um, asking me to do that, sort of like asking, I don't know, President Obama to say a little bit about health care, I think. <laughs> Except that the memories of the Literacy Conference are much more pleasant than I'm sure his are right now. But back in the fall, sometime in the fall of 1992, if I can get back to my notes here, um, Kay Holbrook and I had just kind of a passing conversation about wouldn't it be cool to have this conference that was a little different than what we had done in the past that really focused just on one thing and one thing only instead of having a wide variety of sessions about a lot of different um, content areas. And, of course, that concept, that thought was that we would have a concept, uh, conference focused around literacy. About probably four or five months later, Kay was at the Arkansas School for the Blind, where I worked at the time, and my office was on the second floor. I was headed up the stairs as Kay was coming down the hall. Something got a hold of me, <laughs> and I turned around and said to Kay, we're going to do this, let's do it. And so the Literacy Conference was born. Um, we put in a lot of hours. We sweated. Um, we were sometimes terrified that nobody was going to come and we were going to have to pay for the whole thing. Um, then we got worried that too many people were going to come and we didn't know what we were going to do with them all. But we were thrilled with the result. We were um, delighted to see the turnout. We had about 350 people at that first conference, and it was the start of something big. We didn't know that at the time. We worried and fretted, would anybody else ever want to have one? Would there never be another one? What were we going to do? How were we going to make this happen? And because of the talent and the gifts and the dedication of people literally all over the country, we are now um, 16 years later and eight conferences later, and I think that uh, we did make it happen. And so it was really a treat for both of us to be able to do that. Um, I wanted to give you just a brief rundown of where um, the other conferences have been. The next conference, um, after the one in Little Rock, was when Alan Koenig and a great group of professionals in Texas asked to host the second one, and that happened in Austin in 1995. In 1997, Donna McNear hosted us in Minneapolis. 
1999, we paid our first visit to the Golden State when Stuart Wittenstein and the folks from Northern California brought the conference to San Francisco. Is that right? Or is it 90? Okay. I thought that was right. <laughs> 2001 found us in Philadelphia, hosted there by Diane Wormsley and a wonderful group from the Pennsylvania area. And we went international in 2003 when Kay brought the conference to Vancouver. In 2005, Kay Farrell and others in Colorado hosted us in Denver. That conference saw the establishment of the Allen Canning Research Award, which you will hear more about. And two years ago, in 1997, we partied with the pirates and found a treasure trove of knowledge at St. Pete Beach in Florida, thanks to Kay Ratzliff and her local group of volunteers. And I tell you that just because I want to um, emphasize this is a conference put on by local groups of volunteers. One of the things that Kay and I really wanted was for this not to be a conference that was owned by an agency, but one that was put together by grassroots efforts at the local level. So, um, I mentioned the um, Alan Koenig Research Award. In 1999, there was a little addition. Each of the conferences has done something to make it their own and to make it um, very special and, and local to them. But the group in, in uh, San Francisco in 1999 really kind of stepped things up a little bit. And Kay and I were both, I think, humbled and surprised to get a phone a call from Stuart Wittenstein saying that they were establishing the Holbrook Humphreys Literacy Award. And um, for those of you who don't know, I'm the Humphreys half of that. I have since gotten married, so that's why it's Bloman, not Humphreys now. <laughs> but um, it was really quite astonishing to find ourselves being presented with that award and to see um, the outstanding tradition that has, has carried on with that award since then. And I'm not sure how Kay feels about it, but I occasionally still have to pinch myself to think that and believe that there's an award with my name on it that was given to the likes of Sally Mangold and Alan Koenig and all of those Diane Wormsley and Francis Mary and Kay and all of those people who I just sort of, it's, it's just mind-boggling. <laughs> so um, we did wonder at the time and think, you know, that maybe we were just a little too young to have an award named after us, but we got over that. So uh, <laughs> and thank you for that. It is my pleasure tonight to be able to introduce to you Diane Wormsley, who will be presenting tonight's Holbrook Humphreys Award. And if Diane would like to come up, I will turn the program over to her. Thank you, Janie. One of the nice things about being a recipient of the award is that you get to give the next one. As Janie mentioned, the Holbrook Humphreys Award was established in 1999, and it was first given to Kay Holbrook and to Janie Humphreys, who were the founders of Getting in Touch with Literacy. It was established to recognize an individual who has had a significant impact on literacy for people who are blind or visually impaired. And this year's Holbrook Humphreys Award recipient is Mary Ann Siller. Mary Ann has had a number of accomplishments which have led to her getting this award. And I probably don't need to remind you of them, but I will just take a couple minutes. But first of all, to give you just a little bit of background on Mary Ann, she began her career as a teacher of the visually impaired. Yay! <laughs> she was with the Texas um, Education Service Center Region 2 
teaching kids birth to 21, 20 counties, um, and also doing some consult for 43 counties total. Pretty daunting task. She next went to work for the Texas um, Education Agency. She worked as a special education specialist with responsibles for fiscal management. So she may look like a pretty face, but let me tell you, she knows (laughs) business. (laughs) She was the manager of the state um, VI discretionary funds and the federal funds for IDEA Part B. Then her focus took a national turn in 1990 when she began working um, as the National Program Associate in Education for the American Foundation for the Blind. Her accomplishments are many. You might associate Marianne with um, the AFB Solutions Forum, as she was instrumental in seeing and securing support and participation of 55 organizations in that effort, which dealt with textbooks and instructional materials and the difficulties that people had who were blind and visually impaired in accessing materials. Or you might associate Marianne with her work in establishing a community college curriculum, an associate's degree program for Braille transcribers, the first in the country. (laughs) Or you might think of the development of NIMAS and associate Marianne's name with that, the National Instructional Materials Accessibility Standard. She worked as a liaison with OSEP and CAST, to build state capacity to implement NIMAS, a daunting task, but one that can be done by someone who has great negotiation skills and is able to get groups together to talk together. Or you might know her as someone who is always behind the scenes and sometimes in front of the scenes supporting the national agenda efforts. She just presented, in fact, at the Canadian Teachers Conference in Banff on a rubric for the expanded core curriculum. And throughout her work, there's always been a heavy emphasis on literacy for people with blindness and visual impairment. In mentioning these accomplishments, I know that I'm leaving out other things that Marianne has done, which make her deserving of this award. I don't have time to list them all. You wouldn't want me to. (laughs) And I also want to leave Marianne some time to talk. So it's with great pleasure and with an honor that I introduce Mary Ann Siller, the 2009 recipient of the Holbrook Humphreys Award. Please join me in congratulating Mary Ann. say what we're giving Marianne is an original piece of art by a local artist. Kay Holbrook about three or four years ago took the initiative of instead of having a plaque, picking out something local from the area to give to the recipients of the awards. And this is one that has come from a local um, California native. It's called Autumn Burst. And it's glass with leaves of different color all blown together. So I'll let you take it because I'm afraid I'll drop it. Oh, it's- <laughs> Hello, everyone. I appreciate this. This has been such an honor. Um, Can't tell you how pleased I am and how proud I am to to have that and be here with you. I really had uh, a couple of things I wanted to say to just to remark about what we've done and what we're all about here as we come together, getting in touch with literacy. 
and how fortunate we are to have the opportunity to be together and exchange ideas with dedicated colleagues and friends about literacy programming for children and adults who are blind or visually impaired. This is a unique conference, and actually it's one of my very favorite conferences and always has been because it has a brilliant idea around it. I mean, you think about it. We have information, we have ideas, we have inspiration from so many different people all around one theme, literacy. And you can't get better than that when you have something that we all are coming together to learn and to achieve and to get better at. And I do realize the amount of work that it goes into putting together conferences. And thank you, Nancy and Cheryl, for your work and your time and your committee there are committees of working with us because you really have raised that bar for all of us to have this conference to be the very best. Well, what can you say about Dr. Kay Holbrook and Janie Humphreys-Bloom? But they are inspirations to me and I know to all of us for their dedication and their work and offer the field of blindness and students and families a very important abundant of gifts that they've given us because of this um, conference and their partnership and leadership what would we do without them? And I'm very, very glad on the steps of the Arkansas School for the Blind that you both said yes. I really am proud and humbled that you've chosen me to receive the Holbrook and Humphreys Award and, and named for these wonderful leaders, but also the people that came before this and the people that are friends of mine that I've looked up to and, and, uh, and look towards their ideas and their inspiration. They've really been a, a wonderful mark for me, and so to be part of that group is really quite wonderful. Actually, when Dr. Wormsley, Diane, called and said that I'd won it, I really didn't hear her quite well. I, I thought possibly she was asking me to be on a committee. <laughs> and being the coffee lover that I am, I was going, yes, yes, okay, I will, you know. <laughs> very, very inspired person, but I was speechless, I, and I heard it again. I just really couldn't believe it. So I'm here today in front of you after 30 years of my career and have had a chance to work with so many wonderful, exceptional people in the field and work for such wonderful, exceptional organizations that it's being a real pleasure to be part of this whole field that we're part of with children's issues and, and adults. I believe, actually, one of the things I wanted to share is what I believe tonight and this weekend and all the days throughout the year are not about earning and deserving something, but it's about believing and receiving. And in my heart of hearts, that's really what it's about, is what we believe in and what we receive and what we give out to our colleagues and friends and families that we work with and the children that we work with and adults. I'm inspired each day by colleagues in the room and across the United States who I collaborate with and work alongside. I am a true believer in strong partnerships. I based on a common focus, creating a force that allows us to do more together than we could ever do alone. And a perfect example, what Diane mentioned, is the American Foundation for the Blind Textbook and Instructional Materials Solutions Forum, a truly unique model that was able to change a whole dimension of what we believe in and for children's issues. We started it in October of 1998, prior to the APH annual meeting, and it became a forceful national march to bring access to textbooks and instructional materials to children who are blind or visually impaired. 
In the past, groups and people acted alone, but we turned that model around and we forged a new way and we took a new belief that you have to work together to make a difference. Individuals and groups brought their best ideas to the table, their hard work and five committees and five awesome committee leaders, 55 national collaborative partners, and 250-plus on a listserv and an army of caring people in order to make a difference in the lives of children who we love and, and respect and want to have the best in their lives. We broke down barriers. We made a difference and since 1998. 55 collaborative partners can actually say there's been more than 45 different projects that have come from that AFB Solutions Forum. And these different projects have been born by the collaborative effort of so many. The projects and initiatives, as Diane mentioned, a couple of them were the uh, NIMAS National Centers of, at CAS came from this whole national force. The online tutorial at AFB for Braille transcribers to learn more about publisher files and also the online career for a college at the college level for a Braille transcriber. This initiative was also supported through grants from the Verizon Foundation and other grants that my partner, Francis Mary DeAndrea, and I were able to find and, and mature in partnerships in the corporate world. We had a national celebrity spokesman, Eric Weinmayer, who is the uh, legendary mountain climber who happens to be blind. And this was all in a great success. We turned it around, a college career for a Braille transcriber. And the first online Braille transcriber course started in 2006. And I understand now that it, um, it was at Northwest Vista College, but I understand now that it's going to be moved uh, to UMass Boston with Bob McCulley, Laura Bozeman, and Sandy. And we're really pleased by that. Another perfect example, of course, was the, was the NIMAS effort and the door-to-door -door grassroots advocacy effort that started with parents, consumers, teachers, and a whole list of people that were caring, looking out and trying to find what the best solution would be for legislation. The right book at the right time. That was our motto on Capitol Hill. That creative phrase was coined by our colleague and one of the members of my committee, Mary Nell McLennan, which really fits exactly what it's about, the right book at the right time. And just to think, five years ago, November 17th, the bipartisan bill was signed, was actually voted on, which was within IDEA, that changed the whole motion of what this new legislation would be and what it would be for children to actually have access to instructional materials. And then it was signed December 3rd, 2004. I really do credit the AFB Solutions Forum and their strong network and the unending balance of families and consumers and teachers coming together to write endless letters, emails for months and months and months to actually make a difference. But it was that network. It was that community partnership. That's what drove that success. And as a result of this, the provision for textbooks and instructional materials, for students to have access to that is in all 50 states, not just in one, not just in two, but in all 50 states. I've been fortunate to work with such amazing, dedicated people that have been able to revolutionize our field. And I feel very blessed by that, to be able to work alongside them. I did it all because of the work I love 
the children that I enjoy being around, and the families. And to be recognized in this way is giving me great pride and great joy. And I can't thank you enough to be honored in this wonderful way. In life, we accomplish more with teamwork and a positive spirit. I truly believe that. And we can't do anything unless we work together on that. I look forward to new exciting opportunities as we balance this whole offering of literacy for our children and adults. And look forward to working alongside all of you in, in the months and years to come. And I thank you very much from the bottom of my heart for this award. It means so much. Thank you. The next part of this agenda is something a little bit different. Um, Cheryl Kamehanan and I were talking a while ago, Cheryl, right? And we were actually talking about partly the um, ABC Braille study being a, a keynote for the conference. And as we were talking, Cheryl said to me, you know what I'd really like is just if we could just have Kay Holbrook up on stage and just everybody have a conversation with Kay. And I said, okay, let's do it. Let's call it Conversations with Kay. And so that's what this next part of the presentation came from. So if I could get Kay Holbrook and Francis Mary DeAndrea, my two partners in crime. We're going to have a conversation with Kay. But there is a little bit of a twist to this. Um, Kay is going to be... She didn't want to do this all by herself, so she came up with a way that she would select some quotations, and then she will comment on them, and then Frances, Mary, and I have to comment in what they mean to us. But there's also another twist, a Twitter twist. Okay. Welcome. It's really nice to see all of you. Um, Actually, in a way, I wish I had said, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. But in the bigger way, I'm so glad that we're doing this because that's what I want this whole conference to be, is conversations. And the more that we can talk to each other, the better. Um, Oh, I don't know when it was, a couple of months ago, I started thinking about um, using Twitter as as a... a new way to communicate with people who are at the conference, but more importantly, people who would love to be here but for some reason can't. They couldn't make the trip, they didn't have the funding, or frankly, they're in New Zealand. (laughs) And so we set up a Twitter account. How many of you heard that we set up a Twitter account for the conference? Oh, good for you. Almost all the hands. Good. So we set up a Twitter account and, uh, and assigned um, my doctoral student, Adam, Adam Wilton, Adam, wave your hand, as the, <laughs> as the big tweet, I call him. <laughs> and um, so throughout tonight, throughout our session tonight, we're going to be sending tweets to the, um, to the Twitter account, the GITWL2009 Twitter account. We have, Adam, how many currently? 57 people following this conference right now from really all over the world. So um, we are going to be um, using the Twitter as a way for 
us to communicate in a bigger sense and also to hear from people who I actually know somebody who was setting his alarm clock to get up so that he could be awake during the Pacific time zone um, time when this conference uh, opening session was happening. So it's very exciting to think that we're, um, that we're gathering with a group of people here in Costa Mesa, but we're also gathering with a bigger community. Um, so yes, I, um, we decided that one of the ways that we would do this is to segment this session, this, this conversation, into four, four segments. And we've chosen a quote that we're going to be talking about. And at the end, I'll, we'll, we'll talk first, <laughs> of course. And then, we're, and then we're going to let you all have some conversation at your tables. And we've got people scattered around the hall with computers that are tied to Twitter. And we'd like for you to share your thoughts. I don't know how much you know about Twitter. I'm not going to do a Twitter lecture right now, although I really do feel like I might be able to. Um, But each tweet can be 140 characters. That's it. That's all you can put on. Um, So we are going to be sending tweets. Um, throughout the conference, uh, through, sorry, well, throughout the conference, but throughout this session. And the pe- if you have a computer at a table, would you raise your hand and if you're uh, ready to tweet? First so, table. first table, a uh, couple way, over here. Anyone who has an open computer when we start tweeting um, should be able to take your, your handwritten note from your table and put it on cyberspace for the people who are who are helping. It also will give a, a written record for you if you want to go back and uh, join this, uh, follow the our our Twitter and um, and see what everybody has put in. I expect also to be getting notes from the people tweets. I can't say that from the people who are who are following us. So, okay. We set this up to be kind of like, please forgive me, Regis and Kelly, <laughs> or The View, or something like that. That's why we're set up like this. So join with us. And we haven't discussed. We've, we've debriefed just a teeny bit to make sure that we all, all know what we're doing, but we haven't really discussed what our ideas are about this. So the first quote that we're going to talk about is, Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? By T.S. Eliot. And when I read this quote, I started thinking of um, the importance of deep understanding and and how much we're losing some of the deep understanding in Googleization of the world. I teach at University of British Columbia, and I know that absolutely any topic I give to my students right now, they could go and do a Google search and probably get everything I could think of telling them. Um, but that's not what, what rich information is, and that doesn't make you wise. Um, we're inundated with information, and sometimes knowledge can be disguised can disguise itself as wisdom, but it's not wisdom. Um, I think we'll all, we would all agree that surface knowledge is not important. So I really want to talk for just a minute about wisdom. Um, and when I was thinking about wisdom, I, I, did, I did do a Google search. Please forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> Seems a little bit contradictory, but... Um, 
Uh, I found that a, a philosopher named Spinoza, who was actually excommunicated from the Catholic mm-hmm. Church, um, uh, had a little quote that said, um, wisdom is seeing things in view of eternity. See, I think that's great. I think that also is a way for us to think about our children who are blind or visually impaired, that we can't have a piece of knowledge about them, that we have to have the deep, the deep-seated knowledge about uh, what these children are experiencing and why. So, Frances Mary, you had some thoughts about this. I did. <laughs> I feel so tall up here. Like, I can see your, my house from up here. Um, we were talking about the importance of professional dialogue. And I don't know how many conferences I had been going to before it hit me that I was probably getting as much from conferences in the hallways between sessions and at lunchtime and at breakfast meetings that I wasn't going to the sessions. So um, that's the other reason we wanted to have this, this time for this, this conversations with Kay, but this dialogue actually with all, all of you as well. And I think this is a great quote to start with um, about wisdom and knowledge. And when I read, when we were talking about this quote, there were actually two books that came to mind. One was Neil Postman's book, Building a Bridge to the 18th Century, where he said something similar um, in regards, in his book, to technology. Because what he said was, we've, we've solved the problem of getting information out to people now, Now what we have to work on is using that information to create knowledge, a body of knowledge, and then to turn that that knowledge into into wisdom. As, As Kay was saying, it's easy to find anything you want on the Internet, but we also have to be, and really like anything you want on the Internet, whether it's true, whether it's completely made up, or whether there's one of my favorite websites is is factcheck.org or the Snopes site, because sometimes there's a grain of truth in something. So as teachers, we also have to be aware of teaching our students, first of all, to be consumers of information and to be critical thinkers about information and about knowledge. Um, because, you know, you can find a website about everything. Um, The second, so Neil Postman's book, Building a Bridge to the 18th Century, is an old favorite. And just uh, a couple of months ago, I have a new favorite, um, and I read Marianne Wolfe's book, and I was lucky enough to get to hear her speak. She wrote a book called Proust and the Squid. Maybe some of you have. It's a new book. She, she writes, she's at um, um, some very famous university that you've all heard of that has just gone out of my head, but um, her, her, she um, does a lot of research into dyslexia. And uh, what she warns against is this, that kind of shallow learning that, that Kay mentioned. Um, what our brains do when we're, when we're skimming, when we're going from hyperlink to hyperlink to hyperlink and skipping and skipping, and what she uh, really recommends, and especially for kids with dyslexia, but I think um, for all of our students, is um, time. What people really need um, when they're reading, when they're, when they're going through the Internet, is time. Time to process, time to think, time to conjecture, to wonder, to ponder about things, to plot and to plan. 
And it's that time that we often don't give or our students don't take that time that we need to encourage them. Time can really be a teacher's enemy. And in some, you know, we have an agenda, we have another school to go to, we've got a meeting, we've got a this, we've got a that. But to take the time sometimes to take a step, to throw the lesson plan out the window if a teachable moment comes up and to recognize that teachable moment, um, to give that time um, for, for the student to follow up, for the student to follow up, and allow them to meander a little bit in search of that deeper, deeper inf- knowledge. Go ahead, Diane. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Unlike my erudite colleagues... <laughs> Um, I kind of, when I hear these things, the first thing I think of is what my own experience is. And when I read this quote the first time, I started thinking about my area, which is personnel prep, and started thinking about how what we do when we train our students is first we give them a lot of information. And then we hope that through that information they have the knowledge and ability to go out and teach. And then they actually do get the knowledge. But in trying it out and in teaching, then at some point they get to, we hope, they get to that place which is called wisdom, and usually that's when they're old and ready to retire. (laughs) Um, But it also reminded me of the book How People Learn, because they talk about the novice learner and the experienced learner or the mature learner. And so they're, they're really using that same analogy of the person who is just beginning to try things out. Um, That was one of the things I thought of. Another thing I thought of is it seems like in this day and age, what we get more and more and more of is just information bites, and uh, we don't necessarily know what to do with them. And in that regard, I'm reading this book called, um, I can't even remember what it is. It's the guy who goes through the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. that one. <laughs> <laughs> to see, the problem is when you get old and you get all this wisdom, there's so much in your brain that you can't remember it the all. The information so. goes out. Right. <laughs> but in also in, in thinking about <clears throat> how people learn and the information and knowledge, one of the things I always think about is that in order for us to really learn anything, it has to be meaningful for us. So no matter how much information somebody gives you, you're not going to retain it unless you've got some Velcro in your brain, um, which means that it's something that you can relate to. And that's something I think about with our students all the time, particularly our students who are multiply impaired, is that without something that's meaningful to them, it's very difficult for them to learn. Um, And one other thing, the last one was I thought of a statement that I often say to my students, 10 words of why is worth 100 words of how. In other words, if you tell somebody why they are to do something, rather than just explaining how you do it, if you tell them how, they can only do what you've told them. If you tell them why, they can be creative and experiment and do other things. So I think this was one of the things that meant to me. Okay. Now, see, this is what I want to do. I want to stop and I want to say, Francis, Mary, where'd you get that book? Or, and that's really kind of what our conversations uh, were, we were thinking of. So now what we want you to do is to, in, at your table, um, talk about this. Our Twitter question is, how can we develop professional wisdom individually or in our field?
And remember, you've got 140 characters. You can um, write a note individually. You can take somebody's computer. They're going to be the people with computers. And I'll have one up here um, so we can post. You've just got about three minutes to do this. And so have a little bit of conversation at your table. Okay. Okay. So... Um, Come back together. We still have some more things to talk about. But we've, we've now switched the screen to our Twitter page. And um, we have, uh, let's see, uh, Adam's going to come up here in just a minute and help us. He's running. Um, so, Adam, you want to look and see if there's some interesting tweets? All right, so Debbie Sitar, where are you? So Debbie's in the back here, and she uh, and her group say time, experience, and sharing collective wisdom. Sharing for collective wisdom? It's a little out of focus. Okay. All right. Um, Then let's see. Collaboration. That's also from, from the left side over here. Thank you. All right. And Debbie said, well, you guys are chatty back there, Debbie. Good for you. Um, there's an in, intuitive component. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't read that. It's too blurry. Oh, there's an intuitive component that contributes to our knowledge base. Mm, that's a good point, isn't it? Okay, so all of these things are going to uh, love cycling. Who is that? Is that somebody in here? Love cycling. Good. Um, We learn from our colleagues as well as from our students, keeping an open mind, staying curious, and continuing to grow. Excellent, excellent comments. So these will continue to be on the Twitter page. You can read through what's being posted right now. You can post tonight at midnight if you're up because of jet lag. Um, uh, And we'll, we'll keep going on that. So the next quote... So the next quote that we're going to um, talk about is an an American proverb, and it is, it doesn't work to leap a 20-foot chasm in two 10-foot jumps. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. It sure doesn't. So... When I read that, I was thinking um, that really, uh, I mean, the thing that I thought about was that sometimes we, we don't make the big jump all the way to the other side. Um, we do something halfway, we fail, and then we think that we can't accomplish it because we didn't put our heart and soul into it in the first place. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. I know this is a little crazy. And if Susan Spungen was in here, is Natalie Hilson in here? Okay, Natalie, you may have heard this story before. But, um, oh, I don't know. I was probably a doctoral student like Adam. And we were talking about recruitment. How many times have we talked in this field about recruitment? And I had this idea to do this huge blast um, huge media blast. In fact, my dream was to be on Good Morning America. Now, I didn't want to be on Good Morning America. I wanted Susan Spungen to be on Good Morning America. 
<laughs> but I wanted somebody to be like that big, that big to talk about being a teacher of the visually impaired. Because my, our, our, we've always kind of known that part of the reason we don't have enough teachers is because people don't even know this is a job opportunity in the first place. So, so a lot of the things that we've done, they're good ideas, they're wonderful ideas, but they're not jumping that that big, big grand canyon of an issue that we have to that we have to try. So we jump halfway and then we say things like, we'll never get enough teachers, it's impossible, um, low incidence uh, disability areas are just, um, this, is, this is what it is for, for those areas. And I think maybe, maybe doing something in a bigger, bigger way. Um, I also thought about employment and, and things, how often we talk about the issue of employment and how many times we try and do something and it might work or it might work halfway or it might work for a little bit of time, but can we think of a way to jump that problem so that we really do take care of it? Diane. I had a very different not totally different, but a different take on this. Um, what I thought of very often was um, the, the fact that so many times I've seen students who um, are not learning to read because they're not ready. And so they stay in that readiness stage. Um, and this is both adults and children. I've seen in a lot of instances where adults are... Um, taught to feel shapes and squares and things before they're really ready to to read braille and i feel that you know you'd never get there sometimes if you're not ready but if you could just try you might get ready by being there um, you don't necessarily need to be ready to get there you can make the jump and actually be there and then get ready and <laughs> Is that funny? (laughs) And I think often with our kids who are multi-handicapped that we we keep expecting that we we have to wait until they're ready for them to learn something, and we're we're not willing to kind of take that jump. So that was kind of where my thinking was. I kind of agree with her, yeah. Yes. That was a good way of thinking of it, yeah. Well, and my thinking was actually along the same lines because my thinking when I um, read this quote had to do with risk-taking and the idea of risk-taking. Sometimes you just have to take a deep breath and just jump. Um, Jump far and just go for it. Um, And for students to do that, uh, if you walk into a classroom where there is that level of trust where students feel that they can take those risks in small and large ways. It's just a, ma- it's a magical thing. Have you been in classrooms like that? Or maybe you create that, that classroom your own. It's an atmosphere, creating an atmosphere for children where they feel safe to make those great leaps. And I think about the, the literacy conference we had in uh, Vancouver when Brian Camborn came. And he talked about the conditions of learning. And I've thought often ab- about his, his presentation, what he has to say. And several of his, his conditions for learning have to do with engagement, 
with teachers allowing kids to make approximations and not expecting them to be perfect the first time and to give, give children appropriate and timely feedback. And all of those things allow the child to, to make those leaps and to take those risks um, because they feel that, that somebody expects them to succeed and then they uh, uh, succeed. Um, we talk a lot about, you know, what safe schools are, and we talk about, you know, drug-free and weapon-free. But there's also an aspect of safe schools where kids feel free to, to speak in class and free to express their opinions and free to be different. And I, I think that um, we don't often think enough about how important it is to allow our kids to try, maybe not to, to get it the first time, but to, to try those big leaps. Yeah, excellent. Okay, so your question um, at your tables right now. And those of you who don't have a computer at your table, really write something down and give it to one of the computer people. We'd like to hear hear from you. What? Cheryl will go around. Okay, that would be great. Cheryl will come around and and pick up things. So so our uh, question for this... um, this is, um, we just want you to react to this quote. This is a, you had a reaction. You laughed when you saw the quote. So tell us what you're thinking and how it relates to the work that we're doing. Okay. I think um, you're getting into the hang of this. I can tell. I can tell. Okay. So here we go. Um, we've got some great um, uh, comments here. Kim, Zebahazy, where are you? Where's Kim? Uh, This table over here. Listen to this, you guys. Build a bridge to get there. And remember, you cannot do a 20-foot leap by looking backwards and saying that's how we always did it. That's great. Good job, you guys. Uh, The whole table. Yay. (laughs) Again, Debbie Sitar's table way over in the back says, think outside the box. You can't always go go through traditional channels. And, of course, sometimes it's easier to get forgiveness than permission. There's another one? There's a new one. A new one? You want to read it? That table in the back, they're really cooking there. Um, Ordinary teachers can do extraordinary things. Sometimes you have to step back a bit to be able to jump further. That's a great one. Are there other ones that are being typed in? Yes, I see people typing furiously. <laughs> you know, while, while, while some people are typing in, I just want to say um, Twitter is a new tool. And you, most people who responded to my Twitter message said they either didn't have a Twitter account or didn't know anything about it. But we're teachers, we need to see if this is a tool that can be helpful in our learning. So I'm really excited about, I don't know, figuring out if this is a good good way to do this. All right. Anything else? Um, we got some? Okay. Uh, you, you ready for another quote? I think you're going to like this one, too. So the next quote is... Uh, a um, Native American proverb, if you chase two rabbits, you will lose them both. Okay, so that's also one of those that when I said it to people, they're going, what? What does that mean? 
But here's the theme that I thought of for this. And I thought of the service delivery theme. I started thinking about how many balls people have in the air, how many rabbits different people are are chasing, and how often people say to me, teachers say to me, that they have so much on their plate that they really can't do a good job with anything. And I think that one of the things that, we, that we've got to do is at least recognize that this is the situation for a lot of people. I'll use an example from uh, personnel prep. I don't know how many of our university people are here, but I have become more and more, you know, I live in Canada, so I can um, look at things in a different way. Um, uh, but I have become more and more and more concerned about how often I hear my Colleagues in visual impairment who are strong, committed, smart, wonderful people who would do anything to, to make sure that our field moves forward. And they're doing things like writing NCATE reports. This is the, certificate, the accreditation reports that have nothing to do with whether or not blue, you're, you're, uh, <laughs> he knows exactly what I mean. Um, but so it's pervasive. It's pervasive in education. It's pervasive in our lives. And I think that, it, that when I read this quote, I thought that's exactly what I feel like a lot of the time is that I'm chasing two rabbits and I know I'm really not going to catch either one of them. I'm not going to be able to do a good job on all of the things I'm trying to do. So that was what I was thinking. And we did not talk about these quote. We purposely did not talk about these quotes after we selected them until we got here today. And then we just... So I actually have a completely different reaction to this quote. Because I really took this um, kind of visceral dislike to this quote. I was like, no one telling me I can't have both rabbits. That was my reaction. Um, because I think, you know, when I read this, it's like, what do you mean you can't chase two rabbits? Yes, you, of course you can chase two rabbits. Um, because I think sometimes it's a good thing to choose two things. To, you know, there's print and braille. There's skills and meaning when it comes to reading. There's reading speed and comprehension, right? There's chocolate and peanut butter. There's <laughs> So I think so to me I was thinking of that sometimes balance is what we need. That sometimes we get too fanatical about one rabbit and we let the other rabbit go away when we could have used that rabbit to make more rabbits or something. I don't know. <laughs> I think I'm wandering off the subject. <laughs> but what I, was, what I was really thinking of was the need for balance. Balance in literary, literacy is very important. We need work and we need leisure. We need comprehension and we need fluency. All of that. So um, to me, this, this kind of made me a little ornery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ornery earth. Thank you, Marianne. <laughs> well, um... I'm teaching a class right now, and the subject is learning media assessment. So coming off a discussion board with my students, which was dealing with a case study where a student was uh, a three- or four-year-old student with Lieber's congenital amaurosis, and the question was, what would you do for the learning media assessment, and what do you think, they, they had been given the case study and then they had the learning media assessment, what 
what do you think you should do as far as the learning, the literacy media itself is concerned? And we got into discussions about is print easier to learn than Braille and, and so forth. And when I saw this quote, the first thing I thought of was if I have a child who has a degenerative eye condition so that at some point I know that print is no longer going to be a viable medium. And because of the fact that he's young and still has some vision, I decide that he's going to be a dual media learner. Am I really giving him something down the road? Or do I really need to focus on just one thing? Because if I don't focus on Braille, what's going to happen in a few years is that both rabbits will have run away. So this was the thing that was first in my mind when I thought of this. So it was a little bit more serious. Um, of course, it helped that Caden spelled the word right the first time. So <laughs> we had chose instead of chase. And it kind of threw us for a while. We were trying to figure out why you'd choose rabbits. but <laughs> They're nice things. They're cute animals. But <laughs> Sorry, Kay. <laughs> And they're fluffy. And they're fluffy. They're fluffy. Um, okay, great. Actually, um, I was just looking on our our, um, our Twitter page, and One Table. Who's the One Table group? Somebody that named themselves One Table. Okay. So Tessa and her group over here say, say thanks to Yoda. There is no try. There is only do or not do. So we're philosophers over here. Levitating. levitating. Yeah. So. Okay, so um, we... Do you want to do the... You didn't watch Star Wars. Yeah. The, the question? Yeah. Okay, so the question for, for now, and we're really just going to have a few minutes. We really do want to get through our fourth, our fourth quote. So we'll just take a few minutes, and then we'll pull you back together and, uh, and give you our fourth quote, um, uh, the last of the night. And we won't Twitter after that. Um, but the question for right now is, what helps you appropriately choose your priority? What... What exactly is it that helps you as you're trying to choose priorities? <laughs> what is that? That's, my, that's my computer. Okay. Um, we're going to come back together just uh, real briefly now. We just have a few minutes left. Um, we do have some interesting uh, comments on this one. This, um, this first table up here uh, say, uh, these days we are expected to catch both. Actually, that's a really interesting point because you're trying as hard as you can. We've already told you you can't bo- trap, uh, catch both, although Frances Mary thinks we shouldn't have said that. Um, but, but administrators or parents or, or you yourself tell yourself that you can and you should catch both rabbits. And I think that that's a really important point. Then we have something in the, from the back that says rotated neglect. I don't know what that means. <laughs> But I kind of like it. So. It's my uh, rock band. It's a rock band. <laughs> okay, so our last quote that we want to get to today is a little bit more serious, and we're not going to tweet at the end of it. Okay, so the last quote that we have is um, by a man named Edward Bennell. And his quote is, some goals are so worthy, it is glorious even to fail. And I'm actually going to pass this over to Diane to start with this one. 
When I read this, the first thing I thought of is um, something that's very near and dear to my heart, and that is these very severely handicapped children that we have who are also visually impaired, for whom literacy never seems to be a goal. Or if it is a goal, we don't quite know how to make it a goal. And I thought, it really does seem to me that literacy in itself is worthy enough that it's worth taking the time to expose these children to meaningful stories, to to Braille, to experiences that they might have in stories that they're reading. And maybe we will never get there. Maybe they will never be literate. But it is a worthy enough goal that it is glorious even to fail and something like that. That was the, the very first thing I thought of. And actually, that was the only thing I thought of because it was the last one that we had <laughs> and the plane was landing. <laughs> And I, I had similar thoughts because I was thinking about our field and and the the people who are in it and how much I've, I've learned from everyone over the years. Um, some goals are so worthy. Our field in, in general, look at the, the huge goals that we're involved with every day. We're, we're talking about children learning to be independent. We're talking about social justice, um, self-respect, self-advocacy, um, academic success, and also quality of life. So what, we're, what we do every day is nothing less than, than inviting our students and their families to f- full citizenship with, with their community and, and w- with the world. And really, all we can do is keep trying, because how can, how can we give that up? So that was, that was my thought. Yeah, and in closing, um, I just want to say that um, this conference really, to me, is about our worthy goal. We have a goal of literacy for children and adults with who are blind or visually impaired. It helps me every day to know that you are out there. If I could sit down with each one of you, I would tell you how proud I am of you. How much I love calling you my colleagues, calling you my friends, calling you people, partners that I, that I work with from afar sometimes and close. I, I love the idea of this conversation. It's a very short 45 minutes to talk from this place to that place. But what I really think this whole evening has been about is the idea that Talking to each other is an important part of meeting this worthy, worthy goal. Uh, the, the, the hotel actually has named two drinks at the bar uh, for us. Uh, I think they were named by the conference committee. One is called... A lot of research went into that. Yeah. One of the drinks is called the Braillini. And the other drink is called the Lime Louie Louie. And Louie Louie is spelled L-O-U-I-E-L-O-U-I-S. So the Lime Louie Louie. So what I hope, what we hope, is that this conversation can continue and that you'll raise a drink to each other, a Coke or a water or a Braillini (laughs) or a Lime Louie Louie. And and appreciate for at least this time that you are here that you have a worthy goal 
and that we are working all together to make sure that that goal is accomplished. We will not fail in this. <laughs> so